Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings, listeners. This episode of Cycling in Alignment is an unscripted conversation with Trek Segafredo professional Tom Squinch. We sat down and discussed the 2021 season, touching on the Olympics, Roubaix, and the World Championships. Tom shares some of his experiences from the two Olympic Games he has attended, and I even chime in with some parallels from my own trip to Athens in 2004. We also talk about some specifics in training philosophy, and Tom shares some of the details on his work with his coach, Sebastian Weba, who runs inside, and Tom shares his thoughts on polarized training as well. We also talk about Sebastian Weba and his vacuumizer. To hear more about that story, you'll just have to listen to the episode. Also, we talk about the fact that Latvian is one of the only languages that assigns gender to the surname of humans. And he also educates me on how to properly say his last name, which I may have just not done correctly. As always, I hope that you enjoy this episode of Cycling in Alignment. And if you have questions or comments, use the socials, the Instagrams. I realize that's not a perfect format for you to reach out to me. Some people have been emailing me. That's a secret. Don't tell other people I said that. And hopefully I'll get back to you in a timely fashion. Thanks for listening. Toms, welcome to Cycling in Alignment. Thanks, Colby. How are you, man? I'm good. Good. Yeah, enjoying the off season. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was a long year, but in a good way. Your last race was Lombardy. Yeah. Yeah. So ten days, bit more. Okay. Ago. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about tell us about the trajectory of your season. How how did things how did things go? You had some challenges in the middle of the year, I right know. Yeah, I mean the season obviously was focused mostly on Tokyo as um, yeah that happens every four or five years <laughs> depending <laughs> yeah yeah so I mean yeah that was always the big goal and then everything was um, kind of like yeah just towards that we were thinking all right which races I need to do and to be best in Tokyo because obviously the tour ended just six days before. Mm-hmm. But just looking at past experience, I was like, well, a week after the tour, I'm always doing really well. So, and jet lag is not really a big issue for me. So I just went for it. Okay. And um, wanted to do a bit lighter racing schedule just before the tour. So I didn't do Dauphine or Swiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, spent some time at altitude in Andorra. And then, uh, yeah, did nationals, did the tour, Olympics, all went pretty well. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, Worlds was another big goal, which could have gone uh, a lot better, but uh, the preparation wasn't ideal. I got sick after coming back from Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, just didn't have enough time to, like, start riding well again. Or, I mean, I was riding well, but... You always want to do better and i felt like in that situation i could have used like two more weeks because mm-hmm. afterwards in Roubaix and lombardy was way better yeah 
Isn't that, it's funny, like when you feel the form coming, but yeah. the race is coming yeah. too soon, you can tell. Like, wait, can, can I just expand time here? Yeah, yeah. I need just a couple more hard rides, a couple more motor paces or whatever. But overall, I mean, it was a good year. I, there's quite a few highlights in the year. And I definitely can tell that even in Tokyo, even after the, like, whatever, six hours, five and a half hours of racing, I did my best over 20 minutes. Nice. Up the last climb. Ah, at humidity. Uh-huh. And like with all the everything. So I mean, clearly we hit the nail on the on the head there. Uh-huh. And then another little thing, but what I'm pretty happy about is I managed to do all five monuments in, in the span of twelve months. Mm-hmm. Which I've always wanted to do all five monuments, and Roubaix was the one that was missing. Uh-huh. Plus I got to do one of the most memorable Roubaix out there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And that worked out just because they shoved Ruby at the end of the year. So it yeah. all came together. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. That's great. So you, let's rewind a bit. Cause you mentioned that you do really well with jet lag. So you weren't too concerned about going straight from the tour to Tokyo. Um, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, unpack the jet lag strategy a little bit. Uh, cause that's something I've studied quite a bit and had a lot of conversations with riders about, and also the other thing that makes me think of is my own little micro version of that, which is that, you know, in the six day circuit, we were racing six days on the track. If we had a six day that abutted a world cup, like same scenario, except yeah. obviously the tiny version, <laughs> um, you're pretty much guaranteed to go really good at that world cup, yeah. even though you were tired still sometimes, like you'd get to the world cup on the weekend, which world cups are always Friday, Saturday, Sunday for track racing. And the six day would have ended maybe on the previous Tuesday. So you didn't have much time. I mean, yeah. you're talking three, sometimes four or five days, depending on the schedule. And you'd be tired, but you'd go so good. So was there some of that kind of using the tour to create the ultimate super compensation for Tokyo Road Race? Was that the plan with your coach? And you're still coached by Sebastian? Yep. Okay. Still Sebastian Weber. Yeah. Weber. Sebastian Weber. Have you followed all the conversations about his vacuumizer on Fast Talk Labs? No. Did you hear that one? No. Oh my God. Okay. We got a segue on this. So they were doing one of the episodes with Sebastian. He was talking about how he was doing the podcast at home and he was like, I'm really sorry, but Sebastian did his accent. He was yeah. like, Can you hear the vacuumizer? <laughs> and they were like, What's a vacuumizer? And he was like describing basically a leaf blower. He's like, You yeah. know, when the neighbor they cleaned the lawn with the vacuumizer. And so. <laughs> It like took off in the fast talk laps forum. They're talking about Sebastian and his vacuum. Yeah. It was like the best uh, thing ever. Anyway, gold. Yep. So, so yeah, maybe thoughts on super compensation. Like that's cool. You're basically using the tour de France as training for another race, right? I mean, yes and no. Kind like, of. Like when everyone's, someone asks, so what is like so big about the tour or whatever? The one thing I really can always say is the tour is never, everyone goes to every other race in preparation for something else. There's always someone that's preparing for something else. Even in the spring, even though it's Roubaix, maybe, I don't know, some guys are still there just getting back into racing or whatever. Mm-hmm. They had to be on the start line, but the tour, everyone's on the start line to be at the tour. No one is thinking about anything else. Mm-hmm. So obviously even in the tour, I was not thinking about the Olympics. It was always just down the road. It's not like you need to prepare for it anyways. You just ride the tour and you'll be good. Um, and rest yeah and rest yeah. Ops afterwards obviously yeah uh yeah i don't think i did i mean maybe i did two and a half hour ride between the tour and olympics yeah and olympics was like a six hour day but you also had to you had a ton of travel and probably covid protocols and quarantine and all sorts of other weird stuff to deal with so yeah i mean we got pretty lucky with 
the travel because we flew the Sunday from Champs straight to the airport. Right after. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and like Brutal. straight onto the flight. Yeah. And land there. And we got pretty lucky going through all the airport security and testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we were out there, out of the airport like three hours after. Yeah. And there were teams that were, or in general, athletes and staff that got stuck in for way longer. Yeah. So um, we got lucky in that way. Still was like we arrived still 1 a.m. maybe. But yeah, I feel like it was, it's always been like I've noticed that even after the Walter, the first year I did it, even though in the Walter was really bad at the end of the Walter. And I mean, I was suffering a lot and it was definitely one of the hardest races I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still really good afterwards. So, I've always needed that, I don't know, big block of training or big block of racing to actually get good. Mm-hmm. So that's why we chose the tour as the like, not preparation race, but as the race before yeah. Tokyo. Yeah. I mean, that's a funny thing about cycling. It's like, assuming you have a rider, my, my line of thought is assuming you have a rider who's biomechanically pretty sound, meaning they can ride their bike quite a bit and not have knee problems or chronic back problems or joint issues. And assuming their blood chemistry is relatively solid, which probably has something to do with them just as a human, but also has to do with their diet. And then assuming that their immune system is strong enough, like cycling is a sport where if you have those three pillars in place, maybe I'm missing one, but I think those are the basic ones. You can pretty much just stack massive, massive amounts of load. And to a certain degree, the rider will only get better, right? Or at least in a kind of specific pathway, like, like basically their aerobic engine gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And for a, a race like the Olympic road race, that's your dominant, that's what you need. You know, it's not a points race for 45 minutes. It's not a criterium. Yeah. It's not a 20 minute time trial. It's a big giant road race where you're basically the most fatigue resistant rider is probably going to be at least in the hunt for yeah. the win. Right. Yeah. So, but all, but the hard part is organizing all those pillars to get it so that you can just pile load on load on load. And, and that's where and people, staying healthy. Right. Yeah. That's that. And, the, yeah. and especially so then you add all the travel to the time zones and yeah. the airport food and the hotels and the COVID bubble or not. And yeah. all those complications. And yeah. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So then in terms of jet lag, um, I know you and I've had conversations about this in the past and I have found late in my racing adventures, I found in particular that fasting on long flights really helped me adapt for jet lag, like no food, water only. Yeah. Um, and I know you've fasted in the past. Uh, you've also fasted in your off season. Are you fasting right now? No, I'm not. Okay. Did you fast after the end of this year? No, I didn't actually. Okay. uh, Yeah. I did it after one, one of the seasons and, uh, yeah, it was more of a test for what either, well, for one, if I could do it, mm-hmm. but for two, if that would change anything. Uh, it didn't really change much. So I was like, nah, whatever, not really gonna do that again, maybe. Maybe okay. eventually some po- at some point, but for sure when going to races, abroad, like on long flights, I still fast and I still fast every once in a while, but not for more than days. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but yeah, after the tour, it was, uh, I mean, it's harder to fast. It's, you have to really 
the flights have to align and you have to all like all has to go smooth because at one point it's just very complicated to keep fasting yeah uh and like if you've done a stage of the tour and then you have to st go into fasting is not the easiest thing either but i just made sure that i had plenty of food after the race and actually made sure that it's uh like higher on the fat protein side than anything and i feel like when i do that instead of like high carb mm -hmm. then it's just like the glucose doesn't spike and you don't have the like feeling of that you can't hold the fast anymore uh -huh. um but besides fasting there's quite a lot of other small details that i always pay attention to okay and uh probably the biggest one is just getting into sunlight yeah um like say if i'm coming to the states where the sun like obviously is up later than europe then always trying to get the evening sun as much as i can which is perfect right now <laughs> yeah uh and that always helps for the body just just to not start falling asleep at like 3 p.m yep um and obviously if you're going to europe then it's the opposite you just as soon as you wake up you need to get in the sun as much as you can um that always helps a lot for me to for the body to just yeah reset yeah and see where the sun is and start to um yeah realize what's day what's night but i've even done like for example right now when i was coming here let's say i didn't want to because the travel was like 24 hours and i was like postseason and not really in a spot where i wanted to fast yeah um then what i do is i make sure i have the first meal um or one meal the last meal before i fast quote unquote um like early in the day 3 4 p.m mm -hmm. and uh then just survive till breakfast yeah and because you sleep and so on it's not that bad and then maybe even extend until the sun comes up to have breakfast right and then it also helps me to like now day two i was fine i was not feeling super tired the jet lag wasn't there i was sleeping eight hours at night so i mean it was okay mm -hmm. and so i think that even if you are suddenly thrown off but you've been wherever you are two days i think that you can always do like a 16 18 hour fast till breakfast and then reset your body that okay, way right. yeah. yeah i think well at least for me that works yeah yeah it's interesting um ben greenfield talks about that he talks about the concept of using your meals basically as a, as a zeitgeber yeah. just like a circadian reset yeah right because we i mean there's certain events in our natural life that we just know that it tells our body what time it is the sun's a big one food's another one you get up in the morning maybe you get up when the sun rises maybe you're up before maybe you're right after but you expect morning sun your body expects it and then usually you do things like drink coffee and have breakfast yeah so if you land in europe you know you've flown all night and you get there then it kind of makes sense to be in the sun and have coffee and have breakfast food yeah <laughs> right um but sometimes i so what i found is yeah the fasting helps me reset that so that the the zeitgeber has more of an impact i'd say because if i just stack food on top of food on top of food then it's like your body doesn't know what's going on yeah, especially yeah, yeah. when you're in an airplane and you're just eating i mean yeah. to be honest the the fasting on the flight is half about resetting my clock but it's also about just avoiding airplane food which yeah, is for all sure. just complete shit. Yeah, yeah. i mean let's be honest like it doesn't matter for first class or whatever it's all garbage so it's just you know probably annihilated with msg and sugar to make it taste good and also you're bored on an airplane yeah so we all want to eat when we're bored yeah. 
So I don't it's, know. It's harder not to fast when you're on a plane. So that I think that's why, um, like a few times I've done it after arriving. Yeah, because I mean. I yeah. don't know. In an airplane, I suddenly want M and M's and right, whatever, whatever they have on the cart. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And and actually, also, um, I mean, as people that exercise, that actually also helps. Like if I have traveled here, then I might actually try and do the ride later that I would normally. Uh, and if I tra travel to Europe, then maybe the first ride, the first two days I do real early hmm. just to help the body like get on that, yeah, hmm. get on that rhythm. I mean, my rule, like I try not to overthink it, like, and maybe I haven't played with this enough, but my logic is that basically, I think a lot of the hang up for people from what I've noticed is that when they land somewhere new, they're doing a lot of math in their heads and they're thinking about like when they normally go to bed and when they should go to sleep and they're trying to push these levers and make it really complicated for me. I just make it really simple. It's like, if I'm in France now, I'm on French time. Yeah. That means I eat breakfast on French time. Yeah. I ride my bike on French time, which is probably 10 a.m. after breakfast. And that's it. I'm there. And I don't look back. And when I do that, I mean, I've had an astoundingly high success rate at transitioning to that. Like, it's very rare that I traveled to Europe for a bike race and had disrupted sleep. I do remember one six days in Copenhagen in particular I did with Holloway. And <laughs> I was not sleeping. And that was absolutely miserable. It was yeah. like... I was like the walking dead after a few days of that and just getting my teeth kicked in at those races. But that's what's worked for me, but I recognize it doesn't work for everybody. I've also pulled off some crazy stuff. Like, I don't know how we did this or why necessarily, because looking back on it, it was like, what, whose good idea was this? But we flew to Manchester for when they had the revolution track series, we flew there for a revolution and we landed at like seven in the morning and we raced the revolution that night. And I got there and I had this whole plan worked out. I, I kind of took it as an interesting challenge. I was like, all right, let's see how I can pull this off. I don't remember why we had to fly that close. It just, we did. Um, <laughs> There's some reason, you know? And so we landed there and then Friedman showed up. Mike Friedman was racing with me and they, of course his kit didn't show up. Like well, they missing oh. one of his bags. So I was like, well, we're going for a road ride in the morning. We're going to take our road bikes. Cause then we turned into a camp and we stayed for a week or something. And I was like, I'm going to go on like a three hour road ride as soon as we get there but it's going to be really, really easy, but I'm just going to pedal and just flush all the crap out of my legs, all the edema, all the swelling and just flush, 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 flush. And then I'm going to have a huge lunch and then I'm going to take a nap and set a really loud alarm. And then I'm going to get up and go race the revolution. Okay. And Freeman was like, okay, I'll go for a ride with you. And so he's riding in sweatpants because he had nothing else. Luckily he, he followed the rule and brought his shoes on his carry on. So he had like a shoes and he found a helmet or whatever. And his bike showed up. So he's riding in sweats. Somehow he didn't get a cell sore. I don't know how. Um, and then we went that night and I won the freaking points race. And that was, I was like, damn, that worked out pretty well. Yeah. I, was, I was all proud of myself. But um, anyway, it was fun, you know, whatever. But sometimes stuff like that goes well. Yeah, I mean, you got to experiment to see what works. Yeah, that's true. I was probably smashed for like two days after that. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's also a thing when body is in like shock and doesn't know what the hell is going on. Then sometimes it goes to overdrive and you suddenly have like the best performance of your life without like knowing where it came from, but then it ruins you for it. That's it. <laughs> You're tapping, tapping the adrenal load yeah. pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. And that's talking to um on the past in the past episodes I've had my my holistic health practitioner, Dr. Scott Story, come on. And he's not a big fan of fasting. Uh I mean, from his perspective, 
like now fasting is the cool new thing, you know, and everybody's talking about how to make you keto and make you more fat efficient or burning fat more effectively or whatever. And, and all that may or may not be true, but his point is like, if you were really starving in a natural state, that's a state of emergency and your body's kind of like panicked after a point, you know, I mean, I mean, I would argue there, there should be a certain amount of physical and psychological robustness that we have. Like, okay, I missed a meal. I'm not going to die. It shouldn't be like, I have to have, you know, my 850 calories every 6.4 hours or whatever, but because we want, we want people to be durable. We want athletes to be durable yeah. because sometimes planes, you know, get delayed and airports are closed or whatever, and you can't eat. So it's pretty tidy when you can skip a meal and not lose, lose your shit. Yeah. Right. Um, both as an athlete and as a human, but on the other side, like putting your body in that state, that fasted state. And I have fasted quite a bit myself over the years and experimented with it, but Scott's Scott's basically his hypothesis is that it really, it just taps your adrenals because there's a point when you don't have enough blood sugar and your body has to mobilize blood sugar to do all the things you're doing. And so how does it do that? Pushes the adrenal button and the cortisol button and, and then that goes up and that has to come from somewhere. Yeah. So you're going to start catabolizing your own muscle tissue and your glucose levels are going to get, your glycogen levels are going to get extremely low. Yeah. Right? I don't know. I mean, I, I agree. I don't think it's necessary to do it all the time or, I mean, like you said, every once in a while, if you have to skip a meal, it's fine. And right. I mean, that's what every once in a while when you travel across the ocean, that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. It's not that you do it every week. Not now. Yeah. <laughs> not necessarily. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I've also been wearing a continuous blood glucose monitor. I've actually got one on now. Have you been wearing any of those? I've tried them. tried it? Yeah. yeah. I expect, I mean, so the thing with us, as you know, cyclists are sponsored on a team sponsored by this and this nutrition. Mm-hmm. So you use that nutrition yep. uh, and there's not much you can do about it. Um, luckily, every once in a while we race with the national team where you can choose what you eat mm-hmm. more so. Um, so I actually experimented a lot with different kinds of bar gels, drinks while wearing it, which was quite interesting. Mm. Um, on the bike and off the bike or mostly on the bike? Yeah, uh, both. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely, what I found was that there definitely was a difference in even the uh, ordering what you have food, Yep. like breakfast or whatever, yep. especially. I mean, breakfast is the easiest because you've not had food and then you see what happens afterwards. You're breaking your fast. Yeah. Breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the, yeah, for breakfast, I experimented quite a lot with like, different foods and like the order I eat them in, mm-hmm. uh, which was interesting. Do you but have any general observation you want to share with us? Like- I actually don't because I've talked with a lot of other guys and it seems like everyone is very different. So that's uh, a, an important observation in and of itself, yeah. right? So yeah, I've talked with Emerson, I've talked with Robin and yeah. it seems like it is way different and you can't really put out a recipe and right. yeah, right. everyone has, has to see their own values and see what yeah what they need and what they don't yeah yeah i, I would say i've found similar things um one interesting bit that i've come across in a couple different places is that apparently people of asian descent are much they have a different biome in there so they can eat a bowl of rice and not have a blood glucose spike yeah. like most westerners will right and so if you're racing or training or traveling in Asia and you're eating a ton of rice on its own without probably some fat to offset it, yeah. 
you're you might have these wild glucose spikes that are hitting you potentially just because you're probably ancestrally you're not as used to that food source, yeah. right? Um, I don't know if this thing would be really interesting to look at data and see if, for example, people with more Native American bloodline would do better on a natural, like a on not as processed corn. Yeah. You would guess maybe yeah. they would because they're just more used to it. So the yeah. body probably uses that fuel source more sustainably. I've noticed for me, there's certain foods that will send me to the moon. Um, and sometimes, you know, you got this thing on, you got to try some experiments, right? So yeah, exactly. for my daughter's birthday, I was like, well, let's see what happens if I just have apple pie for lunch. <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> yeah. Your blood sugar hits the moon. <laughs> it's just like, wham. But then what's great about it is what I love about, you know, learning the science on stuff like this is that as athletes, we, we put together all these little sensations, right? Like, oh, when I do this, I ride like crap. Or when I use, you know, this drink in this bar, and then I do this stretch. I feel great. There's our car alarm. There we go. <laughs> Got about three of those a day here. Um, so, and then, and so I've, I've been able to put that together, right? And now we have some of the science to go behind that and explain what the numbers are, what the data is yeah. for us personally. And that's why I like the glucose monitor because it gives us an insight. Into that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's similar to like, let's say when power meters first came in. Yeah. When you're yeah. like, and when you're like, I mean, suddenly my heart rate is doing something that I haven't seen it done, but it seems like I'm riding way faster than my heart rate is showing. And what's up with that? And now you have an actual number. Oh, you're riding 300 watts, but your heart rate's 20 beats lower than it usually is. Yeah. You might be tired. Yeah. Or whatever. Or really fit. Yeah. Or really fit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really fit doesn't happen overnight. You would see the right, <laughs> progression. Right, right. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. But I mean, and then at one point you're like, well, I don't need to actually look at the number. I know what what I'm writing. Yes. Like. Yes. Probably you as well. You don't have to look down at the power meter to know that you're writing whatever mm -hmm. and be within five ten watts. Yep. Yep. Right. And I think with the glucose monitor, it's eventually going to be the same thing. Same. Where you're like, hmm, I feel like uh, I might be low, and then you look at the number, and yeah, yeah it's like below yep. 80 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And what I, I mean, one is that having the sensation and having someone explain it, oh, this is why you feel like this, because your glucose is low, because your glucose is high, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but also what I don't understand fully yet is how, Ooh, round two. how to use the glucose monitor in the best way. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just as in, uh, yeah, I think there's still quite a lot we don't understand about it. Same with power meters in the beginning. Probably people were like, well, what does this mean? What, what, what does 300 watts mean? Right. Or whatever. Right. Um, so I think there's still quite a lot to learn and explore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Reading a bit about it and hearing a few interviews with people on it who are, who've studied this field a lot, I would agree, I think, because the you know, power is an output. And so really learning that data was about learning what that output means and how do we interpret it? And then how do we apply it to the demands of races? Blood glucose, I think what people are saying is that there are so many factors that can influence blood glucose because it's yeah. a response, right? We're, we're, we're picking one measurement of how many things could we measure in the body, an infinite number. And we're just saying, does this number have relevance? Does it have significance? And yeah, clearly when I go, when I don't eat, I eat breakfast and I don't eat anything for a few for a few hours and then I have a piece of apple pie. We can see a clear, pretty clear cause and effect there. Yeah. But there are other times where I've noticed my blood glucose will rise or fall and it's not connected to diet necessarily. And so I have to ask what's going on there. And there, there's this subtle interplay of hormones and hydration and stress levels and you know things like that. Activity level. Activity level. Yep. All those things. 
So interpreting that data and deciding, is this a useful metric to track? I think that's good. And, and for athletes who really struggle to develop the intuition as far as what sensations they're hearing, I think, as you said, like yeah. that's where technology can really help us. Um, you can say the same thing about like a whoop or any yeah. HRV monitoring system. And I got to the point, I wore a whoop for two years and I got to the point where I started to play the game. Like, let's guess what my recovery score is going to say this morning. And when you're, when you're in, when you're within, you know, a couple percentage points for yeah. a few weeks in a row, it's like, all right, I don't need to wear this thing anymore. Um, yeah. It's good to check every once in a while again, I think. Yeah. Just like same with the power meter. If you keep riding without a power meter for a long time, you're going to get lost. Yeah. Yeah. Not going to be able to guess it as precise anymore, but yeah. you don't need to watch any of those numbers. I think after you've like understood them and realized what everything entails, then it's not like you need to watch them 24 seven. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I definitely will play around again with the glucose monitors and see what, what I yeah. can figure out. It's, um, it's interesting that UCI has outlawed those, you know, for riders who don't have yeah. diabetes. Right. <clears throat> um, and I can, I mean, that was, I would say probably a predictable call when, because they, the UCI tends to want to keep the sport a little more, I guess you could say pure as an adjective. Um, yeah. They don't want it to be too run by numbers. Yeah. And I can yeah. see that because I mean, I, I mean, what was it? Lance's fifth tour that he almost lost because he basically bonked one day. Like, I mean, it's possible like any rider or riders can miss beads. Riders yeah. can miscalculate caloric needs for a day. Right. Yeah. It's still part of the art of being an athlete. So if we have everything t fed to us yeah. in a stream or like a narrow window of like, you want your blood glucose to be at 160 for this entire stage or whatever. Um, yeah. No, for sure. I agree. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely nice to, I, I feel like, yeah, we should try and keep it as in a way simple, mm -hmm. the sport, just because, yeah, if we start just going by everything's calculated, then might as well not race. <laughs> right. Then just might as well put everyone on trainers and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had a bit of that conversation um, in a previous podcast I recorded with Fast Talk Labs. Um, and it was with some other bike fitters, uh, Todd Carver and Andy Pruitt. And we were talking about that aspect of the sport where when things, we were talking about indoor racing and Swift and Strava and all that stuff. And how you've got these people that come on and have these massive engines, but maybe sometimes they don't have that big of a cycling background, right? And we we're kind of discussing why that is. And for me, the trainer's kind of a bad habit magnifier. You and I were talking about this earlier before we started to hit record, but, um, you know, the trainer's not going to foster good, smooth pedaling or suplex or supple muscle. It's going to let you kind of stomp. It's like a, it's like a badly made couch, an old couch that lets you sit with really crappy posture. Right. Whereas if you get on that nice hard bar stool, it's harder to sit yeah. with a slouch spine. Yeah. You can do it, but it's going to kind of encourage you to sit a little more effectively, stack your stack your skeleton a little more, right? So, um, I don't know what the point I was getting at there, but I mean, like you actually with this, you can see that uh, last year when there was quite a few races and quite a few pros doing Zwift Zwift races, actual mm -hmm. or like Roly or whatever, like there was different names that came on top because those names maybe are not tactically as good, but also the pedaling style is 
maybe not as efficient. Thus, yeah. in an actual race on the road, they would suffer. Yeah. But on a trainer, they can just run. Yeah. Keep running. It was quite a few runners that did this. Just smash, smash, yeah. smash. Yeah. And just they just punch the pedals down and it's done. And that's yeah. I mean I told you, that's how I felt after, like quite a few rides indoors. Uh, that when I got went outside, I just felt like the pedaling technique was lost. Yeah. And I had to get it back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's also something we spoke about on the podcast with um, with Andy and Todd was that you know COVID was like this accelerant for businesses and it either it either really decelerated them or really accelerated. It was like fat famine or, or yeah. famine, right? And and in cycling, on the whole, for the business end of cycling was feast because so many people had time to ride their bikes. So the bike industry has just been annihilated. Of course, nobody did anything and still is still catching up. Racing, of course, took a huge hit and there wasn't a lot of racing. A lot of events died out or a lot of events, event yeah. companies really struggled. Um, you know, things like Oat Root and Lifetime, I'm sure they've really been struggling to keep yeah. their stuff going. It seems like they both survived. But as far as uh, bike fitting, it was feast because we had, I had a, a rash or a run of clients who had, you know, the example of like someone who had kind of been battling like a little niggly knee injury and barely kept it at bay for maybe five, six, seven years. Oh yeah. And then suddenly Kobe came now it was time to ride their bike. And then the knee just exploded. Right. And then if you add indoor training to that, it just amplified that. Yeah. It's like a multiplier for bad habits and injuries. So I don't know. I kind of feel like in that respect, COVID sort of brought out the truth of some people's um, biomechanical challenges. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess yeah. that's good that I didn't get injured or anything on the trainer. Yeah. Good sign. It's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you've been working with Sebastian Weber as your coach for several seasons now, right? Six years now, yeah. Okay, good. And in case the audience doesn't know, Sebastian is the man behind Inside, which is a pretty creative protocol to um, be able to give some insight into a rider's physiological profile with you can use a test out on the road. You just have to follow the test prescription pretty precisely. Yeah. And then you put the, the intervals into their algorithm their software and it spits out some pretty useful info calculates your vo2 and your vla max as well yeah um have you guys you i would assume you're using that technique to push on the appropriate buttons for you and as a rider who specializes in one day races right yeah like what do you want to comment on how that's worked for you and what what you've learned from that process well sebastian in general is a quite a character he has worked with quite a few big names he was coaching tony during his reign as the world champ tony martin yeah, yeah. uh he was coaching grapple he has some good stories of testing those guys as well uh i think uh when actually where they were developing inside obviously one of the tests on inside is like 20 second seated sprint right grapple hit while holding pretty much with just one arm because the other one was like shoulder was broken or uh, clavicle was broken or something he hit like in less than two seconds, he had like a thousand watts yeah. straight up in the, uh, in the saddle, yeah. in the lab, yeah, yeah, yeah. not even on, out on the road. Right. But yeah, I mean, actually last year, 2020 was the first year I decided to, I, I realized that I've, I train a lot. I mean, in general, I, I enjoy riding my bike, so I, I do a lot of miles, but I decided maybe it's time to train smarter instead of more. Uh, so I got a lactate meter myself. Mm. And obviously with this protocol, we could do a bunch of testing whenever I went, even if Sebastian was not there. I could like 
do the efforts required. Uh, so for the people that don't know, it's usually like four or five different efforts uh, at different intensities. One is usually three minutes or so full gas. But again, the great thing about it is that it doesn't need to be um, exactly three minutes. It can be 255. It can be 317. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, this is with a new protocol. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, and you do it out on the road, which is again, great because riding the trainer indoors with a mask in a lab is not super fun. Right. Um, so that's one of them. And then you usually try and hit two, three around the threshold, um, of like five, eight minutes, whatever, uh, again, measure lactate after, and then like a 20 second seated max sprint. And then you usually, that's one of the protocols you can do it. Mm -hmm. That's usually what we did mm -hmm. because I had the lactate meter. And I got actually really good at taking my own blood out of my finger. Yeah. Uh, a few times, actually, uh, I also was like taking the blood out of the finger and it sprayed so much that I sprayed myself in my face <laughs> with the blood. But um, yeah, even this year, um, before I did the big block of altitude training before national, before the tour, uh, we just did the test because we had three weeks. You have a lot of time to train, so you want to see exactly where you are yeah. and which buttons you actually have to push. Yeah. Obviously for the tour, you don't need to be same as for a one day race. So you need, you need to get your VLI max lower. Right. And let's say even though we did like 40, 20s, 30, 30s, whatever, like on off stuff, mm -hmm. it was a different power than you would do if you were trying to like get your VLI max as high as possible for right. the next three weeks or whatever. Right, right, right. Uh, so actually, yeah, I have been enjoying that protocol quite a lot and we've used it quite a bit. Um, so yeah, it's been, uh, it's been interesting. It's been super fun to see also. I mean, you also obviously with that, as soon as you retest, you can see like yeah. what has changed. Yeah. Even actually this year, uh, we didn't have December camp because this like, yeah, this year, last year, uh, because the season ended late and the team just wanted people to have more time at home. Yeah. Uh, but they did prescribe some efforts that you had to do at home on this one ride. And I just did those efforts and measured lactate. And because it doesn't matter if it's five minutes, eight minutes, or five and 35 seconds, uh, that you could punch in the numbers into the system and get the values out. So all I had to do, I think, extra from what team wanted us to do was do the 22nd seated sprint. Yeah. And that's also super useful. Yeah. So then you were able to compare lactate numbers to previous data yeah, points and see what's shifted after that. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so here's a question, and there's a lot of talk about kind of, you know, Steven Seiler and his polarized training model, and he kind of talks about a three-zone model, right? Um, zone one being below LT1 or the first lactate inflection point, and then the middle zone is sort of between LT1 and LT2, and LT2 is threshold, right? And then above that would be zone three. Yeah. So, you know, his whole, his whole method is he, he looked at data from different endurance sports, world-class sports, and noticed that most elite world-level athletes are talking like world championship level athletic, you know, Olympic level avoided zone two quite a bit in their training. He didn't, he wasn't, this wasn't a prescriptive program. This wasn't like, this was just observing, collecting data yeah, yeah. and observing and then parsing it up and analyzing it. And he noticed that it was very polarized. And this is the kind of line of thought of his whole philosophy is that if world level athletes are self-selecting to, you know, primarily stay below LT1 or above LT2 and rarely training in the middle, 
And then, well, the second part is he looked at a lot of amateur data and found the opposite, of course, that they all plow along and love T2 all the time. Um, so question for you then is, and, you know, tell me, obviously, you don't want to disclose anything about your personal training program, just say so, but, like, the question I would pose is then, are you a rider who kind of, when you're doing endurance rides, you know, long rides, whatever, four, five, six hours, uh, are you conscious of LT1? Are you kind of trying to stay just below it? Are you trying to stay just above it? Are you always above it? Do you not care? Like, is that not really a thing you're worried about? Or There's definitely times of the year when I pay more attention and it's more prescribed than other times. There's definitely rides where I do a long endurance ride and never go above LT1. Okay. Um, yep. For sure. For sure. Yeah. There's five, six hour rides when I try to never be above um and obviously then there's rides where you actually do hard efforts and you go above lt2 so right right yeah yeah uh so zone three let's say yeah um i do uh, i guess i don't actually spend that much time in zone two that's true mm -hmm. there's yeah i guess not like threshold efforts as well I rarely do threshold efforts. Uh -huh. Like it's not really a thing yeah. that I do too much. It's so it's so interesting to hear different coaches and different athletes talk about that. I'm as a coach, generally I'm kind of the same way. Yeah. Um, I don't get. I didn't found. I found that I didn't really benefit from a ton of threshold. For me, threshold. The analogy I use is it's like salt and soup. You know, like a little bit at the end, like can tie them together. And I find yeah. a little bit of threshold before a key race can really yeah. like just bring yeah tied together like make the recipe but too much salt in the soup and you just ruin everything but there's some riders who just smash threshold all the time there's some coaches who are threshold all the time for me i think it's really quite destructive for the athlete to recover from that maximum that's effort. the thing i think the problem is that if you spend a lot of time in zone two the recovery is impaired and you just are not getting the same benefit it's, as you yeah, would yeah it's like a pretty high cost in terms of fatigue and aerobic stress yeah but Unless you're coming off the couch, you're not going to gain that much from yeah. it, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're really not fit, then a couple rides where you're just on it all day, kind of like almost like a low-level time traveling zone, yeah. you're just plowing. That'll get you really fit, but it also can... Yeah, you, yeah exactly. You'll yeah. have to recover for it as well. Yeah, interesting. So it sounds like you, you would say that you kind of apply or you kind of fall into Siler's model. You're, you're kind of an 80-20 or at least a polarized... Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. I either ride hard or I don't ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And what kind of volume did you do this year? Like, what was your typical week, do you think, in terms of hours? Uh, every year I do, like, 32,000 Ks, more or less. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in the range of 32 to 30, 34. Yeah. Um, I think I hit like a thousand and uh, always around more than a thousand hours a year yeah. as well. Whatever that equates to a week, people can use yeah, their calculators. Yeah. 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 But at the same time, there's weeks where I do almost nothing. So right. it's hard. It's so, always, that's, yeah. I mean, you know, that's yeah. always a hard question to answer. How many hours do you ride per week or how many kilometers do you do per week? Right. I mean, if I'm riding my mountain bike, the kilometers are nothing. Like last year, November, I did less than 500 kilometers. Yeah. This year, August, I did less than 2,000. Yeah. And then again, in the same scenario, there's months where I do 4,000. Yeah. 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 So, and I mean, that's also, I think, 
not just intensity is polarized, but also the hours should be polarized. Because mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Meaning, meaning what? Meaning there should be weeks where you ride 30 hours and there should be weeks where you ride 10 hours. Ah, okay. You yes. shouldn't ride right. 15 hours every week, every hoping, week. hoping that yeah. Yeah. you get better. Yeah. Intensity and volume, those are the two buttons yeah. we push on. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Um, there's got to be progression in that volume. And I, I found that like a, a shock training week can be quite effective, assuming the athlete is robust enough to handle it. Yeah. But if their baseline kind of typical pattern that they do is, you know, 12 hours a week, 15 hours a week, if you can get them a week off work and get them to somewhere warm and you give them a 24 hour week yeah. and then they're crushed for like five or six days afterwards, that's fine. You just, yeah. you just yeah. let them recover and get them a little Go spins. back to work. Go back recover. to work. Sleep, make sleep up. at work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Take a nap <laughs> at your desk. And then like one or two weeks later, they'll, they'll be flying. Yeah. Like they'll be crushing it. Yeah. I mean, is that exactly? I think if the base is there, yeah, then throwing in some, I don't know, hot coals will, will get you fired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and also knowing what I know about Sebastian, he's not a fan of, for example, fasted riding, right? Which is kind of a thing that's going around. We right did. Now. So the first year I was with him, we were still Cannondale. Yep. Uh, actually did a few. And I think it helped me quite a bit. I did a few, but I mean, again, fasted rides, I think there's a difference between not eating anything and keeping yourself in a fasted state. Uh, The rides we would do, I would still eat, but it would be exclusively protein on the bike. Okay. Either protein drink, or maybe I'd make even an omelet and take that with me. Yeah. Um, And do like rides up to slowly build up to like five hours. And the first year I did Flanders in my first year pro, actually my first ever world tour race <laughs> was Flanders. Really? Yeah. Wow, brutal. <laughs> yeah. But again, I was feeling great. And even after the whatever five and a half hours, I was feeling really good. Hmm. And uh, and I had not done a single ride at home over five hours. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think there's something to it, but... It's not for everyone. It's not all the time. Yeah. I think you could sprinkle it in every once in a while, but it's, you can definitely survive without. Hmm. Like this year, I didn't do a single one. Yeah. And but again, I was fine. Maybe it's one of those things where once that system's kind of developed, like. Yeah. That's what I've, I've been thinking that for maybe like not younger athletes. I don't, I think yeah. that's a stupid idea. Yeah. yeah. But like, some higher lever, athletes. yeah, higher yeah. lever amateur athletes. Yeah. Maybe it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. When someone's growing a lot, you don't want to take away that no, work and, and then apply stress. That's, yeah. a, that's a recipe for And again, that. that's the thing. Like, yeah, like you're saying, it's a lot of stress again. Yep. It's so you definitely burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. I mean, I heard a great podcast the other day and the guy was a nutritionist and was talking about how, you know, he goes to camps in Mallorca and he hears triathletes come up to him and sees him at the, at the breakfast bar or whatever and and they're like, yeah, you know, I've got a race in, in 12 weeks. So this is kind of my final big push. And, and I'm going to train really hard while I'm here. But I also want to lose like two kilos, three kilos. And he just immediately says, that's the moment when I have to step in and like tell them. Like it's one or the other, not both. Yeah. Like when you're training really hard, if you lose weight as a side effect of that, when you're fueling Fine. for the training, then great. Yeah. Take it. 
but your goal should not be to train really hard and lose weight at the same time. That's the wrong order of operations. It was his point. Yeah. Um, do I you think, agree with that? No, totally. I think that actually those blocks when you're training really hard and it's your final big push is when you actually should, especially on the bike, take yeah. as much calories as you can stomach. Yep. Because that's going to be what you're going to do in the race. Right. And that's going to be how your body's going to know, oh, so we're going to go hard now. Right, right. And yeah. you're going to fuel yourself well. You're going to have higher quality efforts. Yep. And overall, the training is going to be way better It'll than be just... covered. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the thing also people like... I used to never eat gel in training. Uh-huh. I definitely do now. Yeah. Even though it's maybe not ideal for your teeth and so on and so forth. Yeah. But it's definitely not just good training because you're, the effort is going to be higher quality, but your also stomach is going to know what you're doing. used to it. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point. I mean... So even if I yeah. did like some lower fasted rides, I would afterwards at some point definitely do like a beta fuel ride or something uh-huh. stupid. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, for me now, like I'm, I'm no longer racing or if I do race, it's just for, for giggles or whatever to participate in the event and yeah, see people yeah. and all that. And I like the practice of cycling, but so I'm super hardcore about it. I like, I, I will probably never have another gel in my life. Most likely. Um, cause to me, that stuff is just ridiculous cake frosting, yeah. but it's rocket fuel. And yeah. if you're running the rocket, you got to have the fuel, but that's a great point that you got to run that fuel in your system sometimes during training, at least to keep the gut used to it. Um, so that you don't have, you don't want to change fuels completely on racing yeah. and have a meltdown. And you don't want to do it like every ride because no, it's unnecessary. It's a, yeah. And it's not the, the hard rides. Source. It's, it's but the hard rides. Rides. Yeah. 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 Especially at the end of the hard rides yeah. probably. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. So that's a great point about fueling too. Like, you know, sports nutrition now people counting grams of carbs and stuff. And the old school used to be, you know, 50, 60 grams an hour. Then it was 70. And now it's like, how much can you get down your mouth vomiting on your stem? People are doing 120 grams of carbs an hour. And, and more or less, my understanding is that if the gut can, can handle it, the more carbs you get in an athlete's mouth, the faster they go is the general thought. Is that, Yeah, I mean, I definitely go above 90 at times. Yeah. Uh, Would I try and just shovel down as much as I could in the hopes that I would go faster? Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's more refined. But I think maybe in that situation, people are thinking of riders, athletes that maybe consume 60 and then are like, if you do more, you're going to go faster. You might go better. Because at one point, I think, yeah your gut's just going to give out for sure. And, and then it's going to be the opposite. Yeah. Of, of yeah. You're either just going to stop the shits or you're going to throw up. Or, yeah. I mean, I, I was really sensitive to that. I know in hot races, like if I eat too much, it just, you felt like there was a brick in your stomach yeah. and you couldn't go fat. Like there was just a clear ceiling to your yeah. level because there was too much blood in the digestive tract and you can't get the blood. So I, when I'm coaching riders, I tell, I tell them, I, I use the analogy of a small aircraft, right? It's like you're constantly, adjusting the speed and altitude yeah. of this lightweight aircraft. And you always want some in the tank. You want to keep fueling, but man, too much. And the thing will just yeah. crash and burn. Or I don't know, however you want to use the analogy, but <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So then on long rides, you're doing some gels and then you're also doing some bars and real food as well, like a mixture. Yeah, not bars really. If I can help it, then I don't need bars. Yeah. Like I eat PB and J's or like some banana bread that I make or some oat bars that I make. Okay. But bars is like, I have bars at home always just because sometimes you're wrecked and you don't, you can't make any food any, for the any next day. Or, yeah. uh, or you 
come back from a race and you have like one day off traveling and then you want to get back into some riding and you just yeah you don't have the time or you go to an altitude camp or you maybe don't have the means to make it in the first week or whatever yeah then i eat bars but really yeah bars are maybe there's always one emergency bar in my uh pocket or something but yeah if i can help it uh, it's not a bar that i eat yeah yeah i mean it's just better i mean agreed for one also you get used to like flavor wise you get used to the bars that you eat and you don't want to eat them every single ride race yeah. snack yeah. <laughs> uh, you want to d differentiate a little bit yeah. get a save them for the right moment yeah. when they're really yeah. needed yeah 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 i used to do uh homemade rice krispie treats from long not my races. i actually i can't remember if it was me or abby that tried to make that but they were so sticky that I didn't uh, do it again. You have to find the right marshmallow blend that's not too yeah. sticky. And then I would add other stuff. And also I would add a lot of sea salt because I, the thing about most bars and gels is they're just so dominantly sweet. Yeah. You know how it is like you do a five-day race or an eight-day race and by the end of it, anything sweet is just yeah. like flavor fatigue is off the chart. So, I mean, actually even in races, I don't need that many bars. Yeah. It's more like rice cakes. Yeah. Those in yeah. rice cubes with whatever that's always the first choice right yeah. it's the real food yeah 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 and if yeah. i can find the time i drop back to the car and get a banana as well yeah it's always nice refreshing yeah something different mm -hmm. and what about off the bike do you have any dietary restrictions uh during the year i do yeah uh i definitely avoid glutinous things okay um i have found that i retain quite a bit of water when i eat gluten yeah uh, and also my skin gets worse. Um, so there's, yeah, quite a few things that don't sit so well in my body with gluten. So I always, uh, avoid that during the year. Mm -hmm. Um, let's say pro probably post Thanksgiving is when I start to uh, eliminate that. Uh, but yeah, it's hard for me to do it throughout the year because I do enjoy beer. Yeah. So, yeah. Which kind of beer? Uh, actually, the Latvia in general has quite a few good beers. Okay. Uh, there's more breweries per capita in Latvia than in Belgium. Really? Yeah, but because the country is so small, <laughs> people don't know. It's like two million people in, yeah. in Latvia, so yeah, yeah, it's kind of easy. But um, it's similar to Belgian beers. Yeah. Okay. okay. Now lately, there's more IPA style things that have come in uh, into Latvia as well, with like smaller breweries making those, but. Yeah, it's more like Belgian style bloggers and hmm. yeah. Do they have, are there a lot of good like gluten-free beers? Is that a thing? No. Nobody does that? Yeah, that's the problem. Ah. I've had, in Spain actually I've found a few gluten-free beers, but yeah, I'd rather have real beer or no beer. Yeah, yeah. What about, um, have you tried any like Japanese beers or rice-based? I haven't actually. It might be, it might be something that might. One thing I did bring back from Tokyo, the only souvenir I brought back from Tokyo was whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny. It's gone. Did you get to spend any time in Tokyo at all? Or was it kind of in and out pretty quick because of like COVID and all that stuff? I mean, how, tell us about the Olympic experience. Yeah. Like, I mean, in general, we got super lucky with Olympics uh -huh. uh, because we got to go to three different locations to stay because in the beginning we were in the small hotel with all the small nations. Yep. And then we went to the normal hotel with like the bigger nations uh, because the first hotel had nobody doing the TT, like none of the small nations. So it actually was 
I mean, I think the day after the road race, the women's road race, it was like closed and they kicked us out. Mm -hmm. So we had to go to the other hotel because I ended up doing TT. Um, and then we went for one night, uh, one night and one full day to the village. Okay. So I got to experience like quite a bit. Yeah. And in cycling, road cycling, not track cycling, yeah. <laughs> you're very lucky that you get to ride on roads yep. and you get to go out training with the people. Yeah. And, uh, the first hotel we stayed at, there were super flex on when you go, when you come back, if you want to go out for a walk, they didn't really yell at you and try and arrest you. Okay. Whereas, uh, the second hotel and quite a few other hotels, cause some nations were staying in like their own hotels. They were like, you leave the parking lot. We call the police. Wow. It was like super strict. Like you can only go on to the venue on a bus kind of thing. Uh, well, you could go training. Oh, okay. But like the staff could not leave the hotel pretty much. So they were pretty much beholden to the hotel as far as supplies and food. And yeah, that must've been a lot of logistical challenges yeah. and staff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, huh. and then as you know, Japan in general is super awesome. I mean, I mean yeah. You Love can it. talk about it and talk about it, right? right. How nice, nice the people are, how welcoming they are and so on. Yep. Uh, and one of the stories that I've started to tell people to explain what Japan is like was after the road race where I finished 22nd, which is, I mean, respectable, but it's not a medal or nothing, you know, uh, it's not even a top 10. Uh, we were staying in the hotel with all the small nations. So it turned out I was like the best place rider of the hotel. Mm -hmm. So at dinner, the chef plus like the manager of the hotel or whatever were trying to find me. Uh -huh. They found me, they had made a chocolate cake with golden sprinkles uh -huh. and they were like, oh, we're so happy, blah, blah, blah. 22nd place. So great. Maybe it's 22nd place, uh, like in the race, but in this meta, in this hotel, gold medal. <laughs> so that's why it was that's chocolate awesome. cake with golden sprinkles. They're yeah. like so stoked, so happy. Yeah. And I mean, that would happen nowhere else. Right. Right. Nowhere else. Yeah. It's true. So, I mean, yeah. that's what the Japanese people are like. It's an incredible country. I got to share a story for my daughter. She was there in high school. She went for the first time and I was shocked because she got to go with her high school senior trip. And so they were there for, I think, eight days or something. And at one point she called me and said, dad, I'm never coming home, <laughs> which shocked me because she's not until that point. Anyway, she yeah. wasn't that type of kid, but I was really floored or blown away when she told me that because I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty, this is a big thing for her yeah. to say that. But then at one point they were doing a tour and they were out in some rice fields. You know, they have those tiered fields in the mountain where they make the, yeah. the rice farms and and she and one of her classmates were walking. And if I'm remembering the story correctly, I believe her her classmate stepped in some mud, like went to step out of it. The shoe, you know, like sucked her mud, her, the mud sucked her shoe in. Yeah. And she was standing there kind of on one foot, you know, with a sock, like, oh boy. And within nanoseconds, like everyone saw her, all the people stopped their working, you know, these kids are just some random high school kids on yeah. a tour. They all stopped what they were doing, dropped all their tools, ran over. Like one person gave her his shoe. The other one pulled her shoe out of the mud, like ran off to go wash it. Yeah. You know, another guy came and like carried her down the rice paddy field. I mean, it was just, and it's a type of society it is. And it's, yeah. it's incredible. I mean, until you go there and experience it, it's hard to, to understand how gracious the people are and yeah. how much, what impacted me was how much respect they have for other human beings. And then immediately as soon as I saw that, I understood how flippant we are in the States about other people. And that 
kind of makes me sad in some ways. Yeah. But there's something very precious about that culture. Yeah, I mean, that's another great story to illustrate. And that would never happen anywhere else. Never happen anywhere else. People be like, hey, look at that. She lost yeah. the shoe in the mud. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Take the phone out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Give me the next reel or whatever. Yeah. 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 So it was cool. I got to go um, spend some time there dropping her off for a couple other study abroad programs she's done. Nice. Just uh, every minute I had in Kyoto and Tokyo were yeah. amazing. And like years before I'd heard a story on the Tim Ferriss podcast, he was joking about how with someone else about how they, um, he's like, yeah, you can go in a Japanese grocery store and you could literally get lost in the grocery store for like three hours, just looking at labels alone. <laughs> and I remember listening to that going, what is wrong with this guy? Like, yeah. does this? <laughs> and then the same, that exactly yeah. happened to me. I mean, the grocery stores are like that. They're incredible. Yeah. You just go and everything is amazing. It's like, they do everything so well. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. What is that? What is that? What, yeah. look at this food. Yeah. Can we figure out what this is? What are these made of? You and know? I mean, that's another thing. Like normally you were not allowed to go anywhere at the hotel. So you could not go to a grocery store, but in our hotel, you, nobody said nothing. So we did. Yeah. And yeah, we did explore quite, did a, explore. quite a long time there. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. And then I, from my, I went to the Olympics in 2004 and I remember the experience of being at, in the village and specifically cafeteria is just one of those moments where you just sit there and people watch for hours and hours and play the what sport is this person game yeah yeah, right? yeah. and all that Tell, did you get a chance to experience a lot of that you were in the village for yeah a, a i was there for pretty much 24 hours so we okay. arrived in the evening and then uh which was another cool thing because uh when we arrived that evening um the three-on-three basketball finals were on and we were in the finals and we won gold nice. so we were with like the whole Olympic Latvian crew that was there watching on one single TV, oh, like cool. watching, cheering up, cheering yeah. them on. And it was super fun. Yeah. Uh, and then when they arrived, it was too late. I was already asleep, but uh, that was really cool. And then, yeah, as you say, you walk around the village, you see what the people are obviously guessing a sport when they're carrying an oar is quite, e- quite easy. Yeah. But there's always like people that you're like, oh man, I have no idea what the sport is, mm-hmm. but because yeah, you can have people that are five foot and you have people that are seven plus. Yep, yep. And it is it is super nice how just it can be, an athlete can be any body type. Yeah. You can always find a sport. Yeah. yeah. Um, Food-wise, the first two hotels were way better because obviously they're in the village they're making for thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... The cafeteria in general, yeah, when you can people watch, it was always fun. Actually, I have a better story from uh, Rio when I was uh, there and one of the big stars, Usain Bolt, walked into the cafeteria and everyone just shuts up. Yeah. Just suddenly silence. You're like, what, what happened? Right. They're like, we're looking around trying to see what, what happened. Yeah. And he's like walking around with his like crew. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even go to the line. They just bring him food. Yeah. Because, and he also usually walks around with headphones that are not plugged in just when you pay attention to it, yeah. but just so people don't really talk to him because, yeah. which is funny because Olympian in general is like, oh, wow, you're an Olympian. But then it's like, oh, you're Usain, Usain Bolt. Yeah. Another class. That, that's a totally different level of yep. an Olympian. Yeah. Um, and then there was like, we were sitting on a table and he's like five tables over, like big long lines. And like between us and him, there's like one guy, like still two tables away from him, like leaning back, 
and having his mate like that sits opposing to him trying to take a picture yeah. so he looks like you know as, as close as possible <laughs> to you saying oh man it was hilarious <laughs> but that's the village that's mm -hmm. how it is i mean it yeah is. you see yeah like when we were in rio we actually were sharing uh the house like the big building with uh the serbs so djokovic was in the elevator a few times with me it's like ah okay cool. yeah yeah sweet yeah. wow yeah, I mean, it's always an experience for sure. Okay, so in Athens, we had one really big disappointment in the cafeteria. We had a McDonald's. <laughs> was there one? There was you? not one in Tokyo. There was one in Rio still. There was one in Rio. Yeah. yeah. But I think in Tokyo, in general, I felt like the village was smaller and there was less uh, non, like, leisure activities, let's say. Uh-huh. I think because of COVID. Yeah. But in general, people think that, oh, yeah, like olympics like this was not really olympics because of all the restrictions and everything actually when you were there it was not so bad you didn't feel that you're missing out on something in okay. particular okay because a lot of people think yeah i mean if these were the only olympics you went to like sucks to be you or something you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it was not really the case if okay. you were there the, that feeling i didn't really have it that's good to hear yeah that's good to hear because i spoke to a couple other people who had hesitation about that and weren't sure if it would be a very different energy or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So Yeah. People were still super friendly. Everyone was still exchanging pins and stuff. So uh -huh. I mean Yeah. It was still super fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got a box of those somewhere. I uh, actually so in Rio I was like chasing pins. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Um but then this year I decided that instead of like trying to get all, I tried to get like some particular ones. Like I got one for Abby's dad. Uh -huh. from portugal because yeah. he's born in portugal oh okay uh for her mom from canada and like picked some particular nations that i knew someone close yeah to me could associate and appreciate it yeah instead yeah. of like chasing every single one yeah so just to explain so people know it's like a whole thing at the olympics like you you get yeah. your official olympic pin from your country right that's like the edition the olympic edition you know and it says your country and your sport a lot of times or sometimes a combination there. Yeah. Then you get a whole crappy box of like corporate ones that nobody wants that are like Xerox or whatever. <laughs> go America. But um, you get the the good ones and then you go to the cafeteria or wherever and you'll trade with other athletes yeah. and try to acquire this collection. And it's a good conversation starter as it well. It is, for sure. Yeah. Going to meet a lot of cool people there. I, a couple of interesting memories I can share from Athens. One was going to the closing ceremonies. You get on the bus and you go to do the thing and I sat down next to a woman, an American woman, and she was um, she was on a team. I don't actually remember what team she was on, but they won a gold medal. So they were wearing their medals. And, you know, I went to the points race and I finished 14th out of 24 riders. So <laughs> kind of similar to you in a way. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't top 10, wasn't on the podium. Yeah. Still proud of it. It was the best I could do. Is how I feel about it. So, okay. Um, but, you know, so I'm on the bus and I'm, I just start talking to this woman and and I know she's wearing the medal. I'm like, hey, can I ask you a favor? Can I can I hold your medal for a second? Can I see it? She was like, sure. Took it off, handed it to me. And it was this beautifully sort of paradoxical moment of like, wow, this is an Olympic gold medal. Like instantly I felt the pride, the energy, the work, the the symbolism of that thing that I was holding in my hand. And I could feel that energy probably coming from her and her teammates, yeah. right? But at the same time, it was just a hunk of metal. Yeah. It was like, 
I could have dropped it on the floor and nobody would have ever known the difference in a way. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a symbol in the truest sense. And it was this thing that meant so much to us and everyone else who were watching this team on TV and all of her family and all of her friends and everyone else around the world who watched that sporting event and watched them win. And that symbol has so much power, but at the same time, it's just a physical object. Yeah. And it's our value that we assigned to that. And it was just this moment of like kind of paradox that I felt that was really at the time quite potent for me. I see it. Yeah. I see it. Yeah. So it was cool. It was a good experience. All of it was a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, Olympics are always fun. I've actually never gotten to hold the medal. So hopefully one day I can hold my own medal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still hopefully a few shots at it. Now, did you get to go to closing or opening ceremonies in Rio or? Neither. Neither. Still, yeah. still the same where road cycling is like the day after. Yeah. And then you don't stay the whole time until the closing. Yeah, until the closing. It was the same thing in Athens. I remember having a conversation with Bobby Julik about, Yeah. he was quite torn about whether to go to opening ceremonies. It wasn't, I don't think the road race was the day after opening. I think it was two days after. Yeah. But just so people know, like probably people are wondering like, why the hell would you care? Like closing ceremonies is probably minimum four hours, maybe longer, probably longer yeah. because it's like you have to assemble and wait for the bus. And then the bus comes and scoops everybody off the village. And then it's a big motorcade. And then you drive wherever you have to drive. And then you unload the bus and you're walking and you're walking and then you're standing and you're assembling for an hour and a half. And then you're walking more. And by the time you do that, and then it's on late, at least in Athens, I remember yeah. them being in the evening, yeah. European time, because that's when it makes sense. So it probably depends on what country you're in or whatever, but, but point being is by the time you get home, it's like two in the morning. And so you're not going to go then train super hard the next day. You're hungry. And then you're in a message in your not sleep. Fuel, not fueled well. And if yeah. you race even after two days, yeah. but 260 Ks, that's, it's kind of an unfortunate yeah. conundrum. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I could see both sides of it. Uh, Bobby did not end up going, if I remember correctly. Have to go look at my old photos i don't think yeah. he was there though <laughs> but we didn't go yeah. i mean both both years the person i was with both of us didn't go um i mean yeah it seems silly to jeopardize the whole point. like the whole thing for just yeah. one agreed one nice yeah. sort of yeah huh well uh, the track, uh, I got to go because the points race wasn't for like another yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 80s or something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember now. But yeah. I mean, if they did, like, I hope that one day they switch it. Like, I don't know, have a few days later or whatever. And then I would go for sure. Yeah. I remember actually in Rio, Kirienka went for Belarus to uh, carry the flag. Right. But yeah, he carried the flag this year for. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Kirienko was racing the road race. Right. Oh, but, yeah, right. But his focus was the TT. Yep. But again, he was like in and out before everyone else because they were like trying to find a way for him to carry flag and still get some sleep. Race. Yeah. Eat some food. Yeah. Um, so I think he was just there for maybe the like five minutes they show on TV yeah. where you're actually carrying the flag and then just bail. But it was still probably like a four hour ordeal. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Instead of a six or more. Right. right, right, yeah. right. That's cool. Yeah. Well then, four well, three more years, right? So yeah. yeah. Three more this time. Okay. Closer. Cool. Plus, so so what I heard actually was is interesting that because of Paris twenty twenty four, the tour is not gonna finish in Paris. Oh. Yeah. Wait, has that ever happened before? No idea. 
But huh. I think so. From what I've heard, they're gonna start it in Paris. Okay. And finish wherever. I don't know. Interesting. Because imagine the craziness. Yeah. Trying to finish the tour when the Olympics is already a week out. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that makes sense. So probably somewhere far away in France, and then yeah. everybody can just jump on a bus and, yeah, yeah, yeah. or a little commuter flight and go yeah. back to Paris. And, huh. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Plus, uh, Wales riders next time around. Mm. Uh, I think we had 160, and now it's going to be like 116. Wow. Because they That's equalized uh, the women and the men. And so then, it, yep. And they have to constantly manage the total number of athletes. It's yeah. like it's like yeah, over yeah, ten thousand yeah. between all countries, all sports. So that's why they have to keep when they add one thing, they have to trim out somewhere else, right? Otherwise, you can't just keep adding. Can't be five hundred thousand yeah. athletes. That one no city can deal with that, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Already, the financial you know discussions around Olympics are so they're always heated, and every yeah. year you hear about people who don't want it, and yeah, yeah. it's um it's a whole thing. Yeah, so for cycling, for road cycling, it's going to be a bit different. That'll be that'll have a significant impact because a smaller peloton changes race quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, and then I don't. They haven't announced any course details for Harris. Uh, ish. Oh, okay. there's again just talks about start and finish at the Eiffel Tower. So and like a punchy course. Yeah, out there around. They've done like you could do right. They've done like. Um, French nationals there or somewhere not too far. Okay. Uh, and then like, yeah, punchy circuits out somewhere of Paris and then last 30K is back into town. That'd be a good course for you. So, I mean, in general, it would be an exciting course to see because I guess it would not be that far off from London mm -hmm. where it's like a punchy course and then the run-in was pretty flat. Yeah. 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 But I think London maybe was shorter. I don't recall. Yeah. But hmm. still, still going to be a, an event. Yeah. Cool. Well, things to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. Many things. So what do you have coming up then? You're, you're riding for Trek Segafredo again for 2022. Yeah. You're in the States for a little while. What, what's the camp schedule? And uh, first camp we can have is December, uh, 13 to 22. So just, uh, yeah, actually, yeah, not far, Altea. Okay. Uh, and then second camp, mid-January, similar dates, a bit longer. Um, also similar area, but in Denia, mm -hmm. so other side of Calpe. Okay. Um, yeah, and then you start racing. Yeah. It goes around quick. And as far as we know, is this calendar for next year looking kind of back to normal? Yeah, ish. ish. Again. Uh, some interesting things that are going to happen. For example, Roubaix. That's they're the yeah, they're to trying to. Well, what is happening? The weekend of Roubaix, per normal, they have elections in France. Ah, and when there's elections, there can be no sporting events. Okay. So people can vote. Right. Um. So, Roubaix is probably not. Well, definitely not going to be on that date. Hmm. So I don't know what they're going to do. The talk there talking about is switching it with Amstel. Uh -huh. So like Flanders weekend, Amstel, Roubaix, instead of Flanders, Roubaix, Amstel. Okay. Um, which would again change things quite significantly because Basque Country ends the day before Amstel. 
mm-hmm. and that's usually a big prep price for guys racing Amstel. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how they're going to do that. Yeah. Plus, Tirreno has changed. Now it's exactly the same dates as Perinis. But it's, I mean, it's small details. Right. But mostly, I'm sure we're going to still see races getting canceled and postponed. But kind of seems like it. Yeah. But, but uh, overall, I think it's going to be similar to this year. Okay. At least. I was almost wondering if after, like, it seemed like so many people were so excited about Roubaix being in the fall with the rain and everything, if they were going to move it to the fall. Maybe. More long term, just to. It might happen. Get more gnarly weather because yeah. nobody likes that so much. But from a spectator standpoint, yeah. sure. I mean, so I liked it. You liked it? Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I really did. I mean, just because I have ridden more on not paid surfaces than most of the Peloton, it definitely is an advantage. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, I was happy. Cool. Yeah. Do you ride when you're. In Europe, do you ride a lot of gravel or mixed terrain on your road bike, or do you have a gravel bike? Or I don't have a gravel bike. I have okay. either a mountain bike or a road bike. Okay. And then, yeah, last year I was riding, I mean, December, I don't think I actually touched my road bike. Uh, and then January I did because we had camp. But again, still all the way till late February, I was riding mountain bike here and there. Yeah. And now we're going on 40-day trip, and I'm only bringing the mountain bike again. Yeah. Because... Why? Yeah. Did you get some mountain biking in and ask him? I didn't. I was trying to take as much time off. As oh, I yeah. You're still. Yeah, yeah, you're still. Yeah. So how long will your break be off the bike, you think? I will try to hit November 8th without touching my bike, at least. So that'll be? That'll be four weeks. Okay. Yeah. But usually after week three, I'm already like an addict, jittery, and can't, <laughs> can't, can't uh, hold myself off the bike but that's i mean that's quite a, that's a solid breaker you're doing other active stuff in that time period sometimes yes sometimes no for sure now yes because we're going on this trip and for sure i'm gonna want to go on some hikes and stuff okay um and then i'm bringing a trx that i can use from the van to yeah. keep the muscles engaged and get back into the gym after pretty quick because i do like to do the gym as well Good. and for sure i'll start running as well yeah Okay. Get, some, get some bone density back after this. Yes. Leisurely cycling. Yes, yes. And what about lifting heavy objects and do that at all or just TRX? No, I mean, I will for sure. After after our trip when we are actually in one place, I have a gym in the garage in Girona. Yeah. Um, and I definitely try and lift some heavy objects Okay. at speed and sometimes not at speed. Right. What, what are your go-to lifts? Um, I've actually really been into quite a lot of workouts that Aaron Carson does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really like the combination of stability uh, and just like, she doesn't really do heavy lifts, but I always use her, she has like videos online uh, that I use to like do as part warm up part, just like balance, stability and coordination. uh, And then do like the, go-to cycling squats and deadlifts and single leg stuff and okay yeah 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 i know a lot of riders locally work with aaron and i've, I've been meaning to i was thinking about just signing up for a couple of classes and just go try and out yeah no she's really good yeah. uh yeah she's a triathlete herself and mm-hmm. or ex-triathlete and works with a lot of triathletes but uh yeah i mean her philosophy is to have healthy healthy people and not really focus on maybe super huge muscle mass and super 
huge strength, but just to have healthy people moving in the right way. Yeah. With the balance in the right spot instead of, yeah, I don't know, uh, yeah, being off balance and getting injured. That's a sensible approach. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Cycling definitely has its list of sport-specific compensation yeah. patterns that I talk about a lot on my pod, so. Yeah, and I mean, she does a lot of, like, single leg um, stuff as well, which always is helpful for any imbalances you have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, squats and deadlifts are important, but ultimately, um, cycling is a unilateral sport, right? Yeah. You're pushing with one leg, so yeah. got to come back to that lunge position yeah. or step up or however you want to tackle it. Incorporate it, yeah. Yep, that's yep. true. Stable pelvis. Yeah. Good. Well, look, man, um, we've been going for a little while here. I don't want to kill your whole evening. You probably got some dinner to eat and eventually things to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thank my, you. My pod. We got one last question to tidy up before we go. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm saying your last name right because I heard Chris say it many years ago and I think you practiced it. So Chris said it, Tom's squinch. Yeah, that's fair. Close enough. Yeah. Yeah. But if you really want to be correct, then even my first name is a bit different. Yeah. It's Tuoms. Tuoms? Yeah. Okay. Tuoms Squeenge. Squeenge. I'm missing a syllable in there. Got to add an extra I. Yeah. Yeah. It's J I. Yeah. J is a year and yeah. Okay. At the end. Okay. Cool. But and now is Abby, she's taking your last name as well? Yeah. But the interesting thing is that she is Squeenya. Uh -huh. Because we have feminine and masculine. Oh. Uh, so my mom, my sister are all... Squeen, yeah. Yeah. And squeench is it's the masculine. masculine. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that's one thing my daughter's taught me so much about Japanese because she's studying that. And how interesting is it? How much can you learn about a culture from learning the language? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That part's really cool. Yeah. Huh. But I don't know that I... I mean... I speak some, a little bit of some other languages, but I don't know that I know another language where they apply masculine and feminine. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this flies like dive bombing the heck out of us. Um, where they apply feminine and masculine to the surname. The surname. Mm. Is there, are there other Maybe languages? Russian. I could see Russian being that way and Lithuanian. Okay. Because Latvian and Lithuanian is super close. Okay. And Russian has three genders for whatever reason. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, they have like what they he call like it. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, like dead, like dead things, sort of. Yeah. Huh. That's like inanimate things or like dead yeah, things? Yeah, inanimate. In, living? Inanimate. No, no, inanimate. Okay, so yeah. like a desk would get a different. Not always, though. No. Not always. Like a desk is not. I think maybe the desk is male for some reason. I want to say. Okay, okay. But some inanimate objects would yeah, get their sometimes, own yeah. pronoun. Yeah. Weird. It's a hard language. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Latvian, the surname changed, but not all surnames. Hmm. Uh, and then obviously, every single thing as well has a gender. Like a jersey will have a gender. Yeah. A fridge will have a gender. What Just, gender is a fridge? Um, male. Fridges are male. Yeah. That's odd because they hold things, they contain things. <laughs> yeah, and they're in the kitchen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad joke. <laughs> huh. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it depends on, like, that's why all Latvian male names end with S. Okay. 
and all female names end with either A or E. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah, English, American English just have nothing to do with any of that. It's no. a box or a chair or a yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, like the closest we come is like when we name our bikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> true. Huh. All right. Well, Twums, thank you. Thanks, Colby. Yeah. Great conversation. I really appreciate you making yeah, time. Your, your trip is short, so. I'll be back in December again. Cool. Cool. And uh, maybe we'll get some of those bottles going. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. There's my, my teaser. We're working on a project together. We'll see if it comes together. I hope so. Cool solution for the plastic water bottle, the icky plastic water bottle. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Cool. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse, as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about, and while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.